three times hit Moby Dick in Star Trek, right? We got uh, Star Trek 2, the Wrath of Khan. That's kind of a, a, you know, a white whale story, except it's Khan, right? Searching for his, for Kirk. Uh, We got uh, First Contact, right? I mean, they openly discuss Moby Dick. She even says, Ahab, have you found your whale yet? And I think the third time is uh, today's episode, uh, The Doomsday Machine. Here, where we have uh, Captain Decker, who uh, won't let the Doomsday Machine goes, man. And he is out to get revenge for all of his fallen comrades. I so guess I can't blame him. Is this a Moby Dick story, or is it a Captain Hook story, where he's after the alligator with the ticking cock? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're both kind of the same, really. I think they are, yeah. Well, anyway, welcome to this episode of The Brothers Trek About. As always, my name is Matt, coming to you from Austin, and coming from Houston is my brother, Ken. Say hello, Ken. Hey, frequencies are open. Yeah, you know, uh, this is an episode that I don't think I had ever seen before. And if I had, I don't remember any of it, which is also possible. Uh, What a great episode this was. Like, I had a lot of fun watching it. It was a really, like, awesome episode. Lots of cool stuff happening. I asked questions, and then, boom, they answered them for me. So that was even better on that one. Uh, This is apparently a a, a beloved episode, one of the ones that always ranks really high when people are uh, talking about, you know, favorite episodes. James Doohan, for instance, said this was one of his favorite episodes. Uh, I think Entertainment Weekly marked it in the top five of their favorite episodes. So, boy, oh, boy, have I been missing out on this one, wouldn't you say, Ken? And, of course, bits of it, there are elements of it that get recycled for... Star Trek the motion picture. Normally, we think that's about an episode we watched just recently, the uh, the Changeling, in which uh, the machine that had gone out to been a probe turns out to encounter something else and becomes, uh, you know, wants to annihilate humans and so forth, and that gets turned into V'ger. But in this yeah. episode, of course, the character of uh, Matt Decker. Uh, you know, his, his son returns, Willard Decker. He's captain of the Enterprise at the beginning. And in a lot of ways, the way um, Commodore Decker takes over Kirk's ship and goes on his own crazy mission, that's what Kirk is doing to his son. The Captain mm, Decker takes right. over his ship, pulls rank, takes command, goes on his crazy quest. So turnabout is fair play in the Star Trek universe. <laughs> I guess so, in so many more ways than one. <laughs> so uh, this had a new writer to Star Trek by the name of uh, Norman Spinrad. He had uh, published two novels called The Solarians, the other one called uh, Agents of Chaos, and he had a third one called Men in the Jungle that was due out uh, soon, but not yet. He had seen uh, both the Star Trek pilots at Worldcon, where he also met Gene Roddenberry. And then uh, early in 1967, he wrote a review for uh, a cinematic magazine. 
uh, about uh, the upcoming film 2001 A Space Odyssey. And in that, he also mentioned how great he thought Star Trek was as well. As well. So, of course, Gene Roddenberry sends him a note saying, uh, I professionally enjoyed your article in cinema about science fiction and personally and emotionally enjoyed your kind reference to Star Trek. When will you get time to discuss the possibilities of doing a Star Trek script for us? Or, if nothing else, let me get you a cup of coffee on the, on the Star Trek stage. So, of course, Spinrad's like, yeah, all right, a cool episode. So he comes up with this uh, interesting idea of this relic of a long, mysteriously vanished race. Uh, the device's semi-sentient computer, which is able to take from Spock's mind, from Kirk's and Kirk's mind, a uh, an image of their ideal woman turned to flesh. And uh, basically the idea is, is that these women would uh, seduce the three characters, except that one of the three ladies was actually bad. You know, she had some like, um, <clears throat> some menace menace in her. You know, there was like a third character maybe in the script that uh, they got all this bad stuff from. And so of course this character, so then they have to choose between the three women and uh, and figure out which one's the bad one or else Kirk has to like pull the plug on the computer and erase all the women, including the one that he has fallen in love with. So that's the idea he pitches. Uh, needless to say, uh, DC Fontana was one of the first to say, um, no, I've kind of already done this already. The Menagerie, The Man Trap, uh, Shore Leave. Can we try and do something a little bit different? Because this is all very similar to stuff we've done before. Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, she mentions, I didn't copy that part into my notes, but yeah, she mentions I'm Mud as well. Spinrad says, Roddenberry calls me back and he says, uh, hey, look, we're running out of money. Can you come up with something that we can shoot on, uh, on the sets we've already got now? Uh, Spinrad says, I was like 25 years old and hadn't written anything for television, but I understood what he meant because I have a friend named Harlan Ellison and I watched what he was doing on various things and I realized that he was writing stuff uh, that would cause the national debt to shoot up, he writes. <laughs> And he said, I had written a novelette that I had never sold, which was to do with a spaceship. And it was basically the story of the doomsday machine. Uh, so I talked to Gene and uh, he said that all, it would make it easy because all they would have to do is redress the sets that they already existed on the Enterprise. He submits his story outline. And of course, uh, Robert Justman immediately says, uh, you know, this seems more like a 7.30 type show, by which he means, you know, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea or Lost in Space. And uh, he also says that uh, I, I honestly feel like we can't afford to make that. Why don't we just uh, cut this story as it is? But of course, uh, NBC hadn't seen the outline yet. So randomly on a phone call with Stan, Ro Stan Robertson, Roddenberry mentions this one. And Stan Robertson says, uh, oh, hey, that sounds like a great idea. You should do that. So, of course, uh, he then writes a, a memo to Gene Kuhn saying, does this counterbalance what Bob Justman says? Because I'd really like to make this script. So uh, Spinrad was asked to revise the story outline to further the de uh, development of Decker so that the role would be more suitable for a name actor. So Spinrad says, if you're going to steal, then steal from the best. And the whole concept was really Moby Dick in a way, he says. So Decker was supposed to be Ahab, 
and Gregory Peck played Ahab in the movies. And there were similarities between Peck and Robert Ryan, who at the time was uh, supposed to be cast as the uh, lead in this episode as Matt Decker. So he wrote it basically with Robert Ryan in mind. Then Stan Robertson gets this version of the outline and he says, can we really accept that there is a creature beyond our galaxy that is so immense and huge that it can eat entire planets? We must tread cautiously, he says. We have prided ourselves, all of us, on both sides of the created structure of Star Trek that our program is a much superior product to all of our competitors in this area of television entertainment. One of their constant devices is such a gimmick as contained in this outline. By stooping to their level, he says, I think that we will not only lose the sophisticated and loyal audience our mail seems to indicate that we have, but will, I believe, act as a limiting force on a larger share of audience that we hope to be reaching in the next season. I'm guessing he was also opposed to uh, the Next Generation episode, Arsenal of Freedom. It's very possible, very possible. Because that's, you know, in a lot of ways, that's also, you know, there's a lost civilization, you know, weapons of tremendous destruction. In that case, of course, it's at a more individual level, right? Right. Uh, it's not a planet killer. But uh, in a lot of ways, the premise is the same. It's just that it's scaled down to a more human scale. Right. So Roddenberry then does something that he had never done before and is probably against protocol in that he then uh, sends the memo that he got from Robertson, the one I just read, and sends it to Spinrad so he can see you know, what the opposition of the story is and how in his first draft he can sort of work against it. You know? Right. So uh, talks to him on the phone and uh, they work something out and he ben- ends up sending a-, a memo that says, oh, which by the way, the name of the... Uh, original draft was the planet eater not the doomsday machine which is clearly a better title but you know what i called my audio file for this podcast is the planet killer oh nice what what it's typically called so there are two two different missions in star trek online that involve planet killers oh really in one as if there are more out there like spock suggests at the end of the show well, in one, you go back in time. Oh, okay. And you're running around in a original series era thing, and presumably, I don't remember whether it was a different one or whether it was the same one, but you just encountered it at a different time, and you're supposed to fight it. And if you're and you're using a Klingon Harpang torpedo, and then when you defeat it, you, you get that as a piece of your, uh, as a mission victory. And the other one takes place again back in time. But I forget how far back. And the Romulans have captured one and they're like trying to figure out how to use it as a weapon. They want to weaponize it, right? They want to figure out how to control mm-hmm. it. And then you go back and stop them. Basically, by turning the planet killer on this Romulan planet. <laughs> wow. And then it gets destroyed. And of course, it's a lot of fun to play as a Romulan, which I've done. You mm-hmm. go down there, like, <laughs> hi, guys. Wait, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I always hate when, you know, like, 
so you represent like the good Romulans of the Romulan Republic, and you're fighting right. the bad Romulans of Tal Shiar, and that's where a lot of the story stuff involving you know Diana or uh, Denise Crosby, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because she's she's leading the evil faction. And uh, I saw always, you know, hated when we're like blowing stuff up and destroying all this stuff, all this Romulan stuff. But uh, it's fun to like be have the uniforms and wander around, and and sure enough, at the end there, you face off against this planet killer. Oh, that's fun. It is fun. So it is. It's a classic episode and appeals to the fans. So uh, DC Fontana had this to say about the first draft of the script. She says, uh, there's a lot of talk in this one, something which may help in editing and polishing because uh, Spinrad didn't know how to, how to write a script. So he's writing these like Shakespearean monologues almost, you know, where these where people are talking to each other, you know, where you might normally read a script where there's one, two or three lines, you know, he's writing like 10, 12, you know, spaced lines in the, in the little dialogue. And, you know, that's just not how it works. She also says this, um, the opticals and the miniature work ought to drive us to the poorhouse, she says. On second thought, what they will probably cost, we'll, we'll have to walk to the poorhouse, she says. <laughs> so I, I wonder, what is, what is the special effects cost on this episode? Oh, we'll get there. We'll get because there. Because that thing looks like it's just a, a cardboard tube wrapped in tinfoil. It was a windsock uh -huh. that was uh, that they basically did uh, uh, not cement, but uh, what do you call the hard stuff? Um, plaster. Yes, plaster of Paris. So that's what it was. So interesting. But yeah, there's cool stuff. We'll talk about we'll talk about that in a minute because it's really neat. Some uh, some of the tricks that they they used in this uh, episode. Robert Justman went on to do another 12-page memo talking about the problems with this script. He starts it off by saying, my feelings about this property are completely unchanged from our previous discussions when it was in outline form. As your associate producer, and even more so your friend, I earnestly entreat you to junk this screenplay and pay off the writer. Spinrad then is like, uh, uh, you know, he, he gets the thing, he's got to write the second draft. So he actually goes over to Harlan Ellison's house and he says, hey, I've never seen the script. Show me what a script looks like. So that I had like, there weren't, computers obviously back then so there was no like form that you could just follow so uh he literally pulled out a bunch of harlan scripts and started looking at him saw what the dialogue was like saw you know how to write uh because he was also overwriting the uh you know what happens yes the descriptions of what happens in each scene some screenwriter i am talking uh but yeah he, can't, he, was, he was overwriting he was writing them like a book you know so uh and they it was making it hard for everyone to read as well he enters, so, uh, the cool breeze blows against his hair. He brushes his hand through his brown, silky hair as he looks coldly right. at the dark, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Gene Kuhn, too, also uh, fed him this note. He says, there'll be great audience confusion in cutting back and forth from the bridge of the Enterprise and the bridge of the Constellation. Uh, this can be solved by playing the Constellation scenes from the auxiliary control room, not the bridge. So that's why... Kirk's in that little room with just the, right. not on the big bridge. Furthermore, it was Kuhn's idea that the doors on the constellation would be like frozen half open and the, the boarding party would constantly have to squeeze through each door. He also says that, he also gave this note, which is that I believe that the eater should not be a living creature. I think that the eater should 
should be constructed in some other galaxy uncounted millions of years ago by a super race and uh, that the purpose of the eater is to mine. So that was the idea at that point. However, it was Gene Kuhn who later comes up with the idea and says, well, what if we made it a doomsday machine? Then we can change the name of it. It would be really cool. So that's also where the, the new name from that came from as well. And you get this nice commentary on, on uh, contemporary, whether it's the Cuban Missile Crisis or mutually assured destruction, the H-bomb, these kinds of things. Right. Just the Cold War in general. Spinrad makes the uh, the perfect requested changes in his second draft. Surprisingly, Robert Justman comes around on this episode. So part of the reason was is because in an effort to get educated on how to write a script, not only did he talk to Harlan Ellison, but he also calls uh, Robert Justman, you know, says, uh, hey, uh, uh, help me out here. What am I doing wrong? Help me make this a better script. So Justman says this, the writer has enormously improved the dialogue in his rewrite as compared with the previous version. Not only are the speeches better, shorter, more concise and to the point, they're also pithier and therefore more believable. Uh, he also says this, which I really liked. Also, although I may find it exasperating when debating with him, he does not give in easily and fights to the death for what he believes in. And this is a trait in which I believe in very strongly. One should only give up as little as absolutely possible in the creative process. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Uh, but then he also goes on to say this. I realize that the writer has in numerous, in numerous instances indicated that certain shots are to be reused again and again throughout the script. And I think that is sporting of him to do that and decent of him to understand my concerns. However, <laughs> my instincts tell me... My instincts tell me that we are perpetuating a felony by attempting to produce a show with this amount of money we have available to us for an individual Star Trek episode. So, of course, <laughs> Justin's still worried, like, the visuals on this are going to be crazy. Yeah. Uh, so Rod and Mary then, uh, you know, handing the script over to Gene Kuhn, writes up a, a quick 12-page memo. All of these memos that they, that this is funny, this happens throughout the book, where there's like 10, 12, 14-page memos are being sent back and forth about each of the scripts, you know? It's so funny. You're like, wow, that's a lot of notes. So, DC Fontana's still running around, right? Yeah, she's the script uh, supervisor, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, today, she's still alive. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm trying to think, who would you, who could you get to like show them an episode of Discovery, right? And get comments about like what what making television is like and how it's changed and like because it always uh, seems I, like you get Justin and you'd show him something like this and he'd start crying. <laughs> He's like, "Oh my god, <laughs> I, I can't believe what you guys could do! This is amazing!" <laughs> oh, I'm it, so sure. Yeah, what does it cost? A gazillion dollars, and then he cries again. <laughs> Love it. It's so true, though. It's so yeah. true. So Roddenberry then, you know, like I said, gives the 12-page memo to Gene Kuhn, and he says, uh, hey, another idea I have is when beaming Kirk back at the end of the episode, consider the possibility of the transporter not quite being fixed yet. Then we've got a bit more going for us if Scotty is working frantically to get it fixed by the time that Kirk gets the other ship into the mouth of the thing. So here we go. He gives us another ticking clock. Like that is just like pure Roddenberry right there. Yep. Oh, can we add a ticking clock at the end of it? Let's do that. <laughs> Which we totally get too, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
All right, so here's some of the fun information that we have about the uh, about the special effects in this episode. So five months before this episode was filmed, AMT Models manufactured the first Enterprise model kits. One of the first kits uh, found its way into this production. The U.S. Constellation was actually a $3 plastic model, blackened and punctured with the rear end of the warp engine nacelles burned until the plastic melted. So there's a cheap, easy way to redo the Enterprise without having to burn our uh, or torture our original model. Yeah, yeah, our beloved model. So uh, the only problem was now how to show the giant plant eater and to uh, show it pulling the Enterprise into its maw. Well, again, the AMT comes to the $3 plastic kick or kit was uh, provided an Enterprise small enough to allow the miniature of the plant eater to just to remain just that, a miniature several feet long. The machine was actually a large airport windsock dipped in plaster of Paris. Aha, that's what I said earlier. So even cheap, cheap space props like this had to take time to film. So to compensate, uh, they had to film this episode in less time than they had filmed any other episode. So is this, they've only got one unit, right? Yeah. So if they're filming these special effects, you know, the rest of the crew is either, you know, waiting for their afternoon of, of something or they're like at home or it's not like they could be like, oh, well, you guys go into no, there was... st Studio B and do your science fiction, -y, you know, stuff. And we're going to go over here and talk about the lithium crystals. No, so they had two different. They did have two different effects houses working on on star trek uh -huh. at this point so yeah so they were obviously they had to wait till the episode was done so that they knew how much uh you know time they needed for each shot but yeah they uh, it was it was done in a different place definitely uh -huh. so they offered mark daniels a bonus they said uh basically we'll give you another 500 dollars to your salary if you will uh get it done in five days so uh he took up the challenge so William Wyndham at uh, 43, he's the guy that they hired to play Matt Decker. He started on stage and was even William Shatner's understudy when he was on Broadway doing the uh, world of Susie Wong. So that's fun. But uh, Wyndham had played many uh, prominent character parts, uh, such as the prosecutor fighting Gregory Peck in To Kill a Mockingbird. So this is uh, the second guest star that we've had from that movie. And on TV, he had already made 150 of what would go on to become 400 appearances on television. So, plus the crew, the 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 damage crew that came down with Scotty and Kirk onto the uh, constellation, were uh, named after three of the uh, assistant directors on the show: Rusty Meek, Elliot Schick, and Charles Washburn. Uh, Charles, the guy who plays uh, Washburn, was his real name was uh, Richard Compton. He was a bit, a, a bit player in the early 60s, and in the 70s, he became a writer, director, and producer. And his behind-the-screen credits include work on the sci-fi series Sliders and Babylon 5. He also directed Star Trek The Next Generation and uh, The X-Files. He also directed William Shatner in a couple episodes of T.J. Hooker as well. So funny that this guy who gets his start as a bit actor on, on Star Trek goes on to do all this other cool sci-fi and Shatner-esque things. We also get uh, Kirk's wraparound tunic here for the first time, which you don't love that shirt, right? I do not, know. 
No, okay, I thought so. This was again a uh, decision to give Kirk an indiv individualistic change of uniform. In view of our attempt to keep him as strong in the lead of the show, we should dress him a bit more, make him stand out a little more, they said. It was one more way that Roddenberry was trying to put attention on Shatner and a bit less on Nimoy, who had uh, recently caused such trouble for the producer. <laughs> Another first is, is uh, that shot that we have in the first scene and then again in the last scene where we actually see them walk by the main viewer. And uh, what's funny is, is that you, you don't see it as well in the... Uh, in the remastered version, but in the original version, they actually had to rear project the space onto the screen when they walked by it. So uh, that I thought that was pretty cool. So Wyndham uh, had this to say about uh, what was happening on onset at the time. He wrote, in Shatner's case, the actor was taking over the character because he was so into being the star that there was no way that he was going to let Nimoy steal scene. Leonard wasn't trying to do this, but Shatner apparently had this thing where his contract called for him to have more lines of dialogue than anyone else. And he actually sat there with a blue pencil taking Spock lines out of the script. Oh, this wasn't Wyndham who said this. This was uh, Spinrad, the, uh, the writer, who saw, uh, saw them do this. He said that uh, at one point, Shatner actually took out Spock's reaction line in the uh, Kirk to Spock uh, discussion because it gave Spock one too many lines. Mark Daniels went through about five takes of this and it didn't work because, you know, that line wasn't in anymore. So I pulled Mark aside and I said, this isn't working. You need another line in there. And he told me that he couldn't because Shatner was counting lines and they couldn't have more lines, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, can we have just Leonard Grunt or something? Shatner was really going there. So, yeah, he was separated from a lot of the action, he goes on to say. But it's a good thing that he wasn't up against Robert Ryan because that would have been an ego that I would not have wanted to have seen. <laughs> Later on, he really recovered from all that, and I admire Bill Shatner these days. You can laugh at this stuff now, but at the time, this was uh, he was very serious about it. Well, they're putting him in a special costume. They're giving him a brand-new shirt so he can, like, stand out even more. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. They're they not helping the, the, you know, the thing by beating his ego this way. So then Wyndham goes on to say this about all of this. He goes, uh, this happens a lot, counting lines and scripts and whose chair is bigger and closer to the set and where's my parking space, all that crap. I felt like telling them to get over it, but William Shatner, in his defense, he had this buzzing going on in his head, which, of course, we know is the, the, you know, the tinnitus that was caused from the explosion when they were filming Arena, remember? But oh, really? uh, yeah, yeah, we talked about that in, uh, we talked about that back in Arena. But uh, yeah, so he had tinnitus going on in his head. Both him and um, and Nimoy had uh, had it for years after it because of those explosions. Which uh, at the time we were recording, you said, "Well, this uh, just makes a case for CGI." <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you don't have your uh, your actors out there getting tinnitus for the rest of their lives. No, uh, why, why are we using real pyrotechnics? Right, exactly. Uh, Wyndham goes on to say, at the time he had this noise in his head that was nearly driving him nuts. Medically, they couldn't fix it, so it just went on and on and on. It was a real handicap to him, and it sure made him nervous. But then they go on to give this like really great example. Uh, this was uh, Jerry Finneman. Um, or no, this is Mark Dan. I don't know who said this. But here's another example of like Shatner being all about the show, right? They say, Shatner's sitting behind the council while Daniels and Finnerman discuss the best way to throw a shadow across his face. And abruptly, out of nowhere, Shatner suggests 
that the light be only across his eyes so that when he lowers his head, his face would go into the shadow, thus lightening the effect of his grief. This is after uh, Decker dies. Daniels and Finnerman exchanged a glance. They tried it and it totally worked. A little thing, perhaps, but it proved to me that William Shatner was a, professional, was a professional's professional. His first concern was always the story and the show. So that's a little nice, like, added bonus there. So uh, Mark, Mark Daniels did indeed finish this episode in five days instead of the usual schedule of six. According to Jerry Finnerman, Daniels made a bet that he could finish the episode in five days and succeeded and uh, got his $500 bonus. The problem was is that it caused a lot more tension on the set because he kept rushing through to get stuff done. No, no, let's go. We got to go move faster. Uh, this is especially problematic for uh, Jerry Finneman, who is our uh, you know DP and our direct and our lighting guy. Uh, so it was really causing him a lot of problems during this uh, episode as well. There's also that three minutes where there's nothing but sock puppets. Well, actually, funny that you say that, because while they aren't sock puppets, the the scene at the beginning when they're on the constellation and uh, they get hit with the beam and uh, everybody sort of gets tossed about for a little bit, there's a shot of Scotty getting tossed about engineering that was actually stolen from another episode because they never covered it. So, <laughs> great. Well, that's all I got in behind the scenes stuff, which, of course, is plenty. I think it's uh, time to get to it, don't you think? I do indeed. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So at the beginning of this episode, we get the tinkly music that we know and love. And then there's lots of people on the bridge, if you notice right at the beginning. A lot of people rushing about. There's two different uh, female yeomans walking about. I assume they're yeomans. I shouldn't assume that. But there are two female uh, crew members walking about. We get a different lady. Lieutenant Palmer, I think is her name on communications and even more oddly enough there are two guards just randomly standing by the uh by the turbo lift which we've also never had before so lieutenant palmer then uh she's telling us about a distress call from something named the constellation spock goes on to tell us that the entire solar system has been destroyed where we charted seven planets last year Matt Decker, we find, was the constellation, uh, or was the captain of the constellation. So I looked it up, and sure enough, in Gene Roddenberry's novelization of Star Trek The Motion Picture, Will Decker is identified as Matt Decker's son. William Decker says this It hasn't been easy for him to live down the old man's legacy. Apparently, losing a Federation ship is still frowned on, whether it's the captain's fault or not. I was like, is that the only thing he's getting over is the fact that the captain lost his ship? Or maybe it was his like half mutiny over the uh, Enterprise or the fact, that, <laughs> the fact that he like drives a shuttlecraft into the, uh, we lose the shuttlecraft too. That's right. Although those seem kind of like it's okay to lose those. <laughs> yeah, they seem pretty uh, expendable. So then they find the beacon to the constellation, but there are no response. We get this really cool shot of the outside of the Enterprise, and there are asteroids, which I thought was cool. That's a nice little touch in a uh, solar system where, that has been, uh, where planets have been exploded. Uh, they find the constellation. Oddly enough, it too is a constant constitution class. And it was funny because we mentioned uh, many episodes ago, I remember when we were, I was uh, editing it, it's just the perfect thing to have those other constitution classes floating around to make everything so much cheaper. The constellation looks like it's been attacked. 
they they surmise. And the Enterprise then goes to red alert while we go to credits. I don't know about you, but uh, for the first half of the show, I was see the constellation by They Might Be Giants running through my head. <laughs> see the constellation right across the sky. Back at it. I love these new effects. I think I say this three or four times throughout the uh, this episode is that the the remastered effects of this episode are incredible and amazing and help tell the story perfectly. It's so good. Plus, I love seeing that destroyed constellation. That's really cool. They beam over to the constellation. They say that all power plants are dead. I think he said power plants. Maybe he said, I don't know what else he would have said. And no other vessels have been scanned in the area. Oh, now Kirk decides he's going to beam, beam aboard the Constellation. McCoy and Scott are going with him with uh, those three other guys I mentioned earlier. Scott takes the uh, half the beaming party down to engineering using the uh, same Jeffrey's tube that we saw at the beginning of last week's episode, right? Same one right there in the middle of the hallway. They arrive in engineering and it's a total mess. There are like things hanging down and it's dark. Kirk and McCoy continue to walk through. There are no signs of life. There's no like coffee laid out or uh, anyone looks like they were in the middle of anything. Whatever happened did not happen without warning. No bodies, they say. No survivors either. Where did everybody go? Where did everybody go? Scott now has checked the phaser banks and they're exhausted. He says they didn't give up without a battle. But where are they? Kirk continues to wonder. They decide to go listen to the captain's log and in the, and in the process, find Matt Decker along the way. There he is on the, uh, the alternative command bridge. He looks spaced out. He can't talk. So they hypo him and he wakes up and immediately recognizes Kirk. Kirk asks what happened. Decker can only say that a, a thing attacked and he can't say more. He's in shock. So Spock turns on the captain's log. Stardate 4202.1. Everything sounds fine. They're going past a solar system that uh, seems like it's lost two or three planets, and they go to investigate. That's the last of the log. They decide to pull all the sensor microtapes and send them back to the Enterprise. Microtapes. Uh, for further uh, analysis. <laughs> I know, microtapes. This is a really clever idea, though. Again, it's one of those ri the, where the writer's like, oh, God, guys, clever. That's awesome. Sending those microtapes over to be scanned. Decker says that they couldn't contact Starfleet. There was too much interference. But what happened to the crew? Decker says that uh, he beamed them down to the planet. We were dead, and I was going to go down with the ship. What attacked you, they ask. They say there is no devil, says Decker, but I saw it. Where's your crew, they then ask. On the third planet. There is no third planet. Don't you think that I know that, he says. There was, but there's not any more. Uh, they called up, but the transporter was out. I couldn't help them, he says. Uh, Jim's about to console Decker, right? But then Washburn steps in with a report. The antimatter crystals are short-circuited by the machine, they think. Is it alive? Is it a machine? Decker says, both. Neither. I don't know. The fourth planet was being eaten up. We, we scanned it, and it was pure anti-proton beam. Absolutely pure. The purest you've ever seen. 
whatever that means. Spock now calls over to the ship, and his hair, especially in this one scene, looks a little longer. Uh, and it doesn't quite have the straight cut on it. There's like a, almost a little bit of V in the front. Just notice that. It looks really cool, though. I, I really liked it. Going full uh, Romulan. <laughs> almost, yeah. He tells us that it's like a robot weapon whose function seems to be to smash planets and use them as fuel. It has come from outside of our galaxy, he says, and if it follows its previously set course, uh, it will hit the most densely populated parts of our galaxy. But why would anyone build this? Bones, you ever hear of a doomsday machine, says Kirk. No, I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. <laughs> he said it, he said it, he said the thing. Kirk tells us about a uh, about a device that was uh, to act as a deterrent, never meant to be used, like the old H-bombs used to be. Then we get this dramatic chord. The original planets is probably long, go long gone, but it's still around and keeps eating. Then Decker loses his mind again. Bones decides it's time to take him to sickbay. Ah, it's a good idea, Bones. You should take him right to sickbay and not make a side note to the bridge. That'd be a really good idea. Uh, but he doesn't do that. So they beam over just as the doomsday machine appears. Dun, dun, dun. And it appears to be pursuing us. And then there's this really long dramatic chord. It's like the longest dramatic chord in history as they go to commercial. So, of course, Dr. Strangelove came out in 64. Yes. It's, a, it's about a doomsday weapon or the logic of the doomsday weapon. You have a weapon that, like, you can't shut down. It's going to be totally effective. It's, like, machine-like. So, total deterrence. And so this is the, I think, the idea they're playing with. So at this point, we know that this thing is supposed to be miles long. That's what Decker says. I don't know if that looks like it's miles long. It's hard to say. However, online searches have told me that the original Enterprise is about 947 feet long, which is like basically a fifth of a mile because like a mile's like 5,400 feet, basically. So it's not even a fifth. It's probably closer to a sixth of a mile long. Hard to say. Yeah, the planet eater looks a little... Go ahead. Maybe it's two miles long. Maybe it's a mile and a half. But like he says miles long. I mean, does. I guess two miles can be miles, but. <laughs> Back at it. The Enterprise with the Constellation following behind, uh, is in tow, I guess. He's being towed by the, uh, we don't really know, but that's what we can assume since they don't have impulse power yet. The Constellation is in tow, and uh, they're still being hunted by the Doomsday Machine, and it is gaining. Can we disable it somehow? No, there doesn't seem to be a way. They're about to beam the captain and the away party over, lowering the deflector beams, and suddenly the doomsday machine fires, as if it knew that the deflector shields were down. On the Enterprise, Spock and Decker take over the helm until Sulu is standing upright again. Damage to transporters, damage to communications. Kirk gets Scotty working on impulse engine. Scotty tells Washburn to join him, but then Kirk's like, no, no, you come help me. We got to get the viewer screen working so we can see what's happening out there. On the Enterprise, there are no casualties, and Spock claims that they have uh, outrun it for now. Decker, standing behind the command chair, asks for a status report. 
So I actually start to ask the question, who has rank here? Does, De does Decker get to take over? I start thinking about these questions. Well, sure enough, in a few mere moments, we will know the answer to that. The DMV. Go ahead. You know, we ask the question, where is the crew? It's, it's like perplexing. And then you get the answer. I beam them down to the planet. And here yeah. you're like, oh, we got this new command officer on the ship. Who's really in charge? And then it resolves itself. We go, it's right. a problem. And it's funny because I don't think until a few moments from now that we even know that he's a Commodore, do we? Right. Right? So, yeah. So until we find out he's a Commodore, we're like, well, he's only another captain of a ship. Like, why Why would he have, you know, say over uh, what happens here? But then finding out he's a Commodore, it makes more sense. Plus, did you notice his shirt with his crazy insignia on it? Yeah, so it wasn't course, well, so at, at the time in the original series, every ship had its own insignia. Yeah. So he's wearing the constellation insignia. It's only when they go to the next generation or or maybe at some point in between the movie era or something, that they decide that the insignia for the enterprise is the insignia for the whole organization. Well, plus it's such a historic ship, too. So yeah. uh so uh the doomsday weapon and machine is still following after the Enterprise and uh, Kirk, but oh no, it sees the system of Rigel and it's there. And we know Rigel, right? We've heard of Rigel before. Spock opts to circle back and pick up Kirk in the game, but Decker has other ideas. Spock says that their number one priority should be to contact Starfleet and warn them about the doomsday machine. They are the only ship who knows. But Decker says that their number one priority should be to preserve life. It should be to destroy this thing. So here's a real conflict, right? Two, diff two different Competing commands, two different ideas. Competing, Com exactly. Competing goods. It's the best Star Trek episodes. So Spock opts uh, to go back to the captain, but Decker belays that order. He then sends the ship towards the doomsday machine. We're going to attack, he says. Commodore Decker decides he's going to exercise his right to take command of the ship. Spock tries to remind him that uh, he has tried once to kill that thing and he failed at the cost of his own ship. Decker breathes for a moment. <sighs> I made a mistake. We were too far away. I that think his real mistake, his real mistake was that he tried to fire phasers while he was in a wormhole. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> right? Uh, then, uh, Bones steps in. He says, Spock, you gotta, you can't let him do this. Decker says, Doctor, you are out of line. Well, so are you, sir. <laughs> says Bones. And then I love that we got Bones sort of siding with Spock here, right? He's right, almost right. pleading with him. Again, we see here, much like we saw in Amok Time, that, you know, they are really good friends. Right. Spock tells Bones that uh, he could relieve Decker from duty if he could produce medical records to prove that he is unfit. See, so Bones, had you actually taken him to the sick bay in the first place, but he can't. But then I ask, well, couldn't he? Couldn't he just like say, uh, hey, I think uh, you got something going on in your old uh, brain of yours. We should uh, get you down to medical and examine him. <laughs> But they don't do that. I mean, an hour ago, the guy was just in shock. So uh, now... Right. And you think, you know. when a captain loses a ship, 
the next thing you don't do is like let him take over a new ship. Exactly. And while it's possible that there aren't rules against that, you know, as of let's say a muck time last week, right? It's, it's it's hard to imagine after this incident that you know Starfleet doesn't like pin a few more regulations. <laughs> I also wonder though, like you, you mentioned, uh, Willard Decker and, and you know his idea of what had happened. And it's very possible that Kirk's the kind of guy who would write the log in such a way that Commodore Decker gets to go down as a hero. You know, he just doesn't talk True. a whole lot about the, he took over his ship, but he did crazy stuff with it. And Kirk basically, you know, spoilers coming up, you know, had to, had to basically put some backbone into Mr. Spock. To, right. Uh, yeah. No kidding. To get him to take over command of the ship again. So at this point, Decker orders bones off the bridge saying that he has uh, gone over the line. He then orders Sulu back towards the uh, doomsday machine. This is a bad idea, I write. And the music agrees with me, and it marches. <laughs> it's like a, like a, a military march is the music, what the music's doing on the way to the machine, uh, on so, the way to the doomsday machine. Here we have one of those characters who's like, and I can't remember his name anymore because I'm old and uh, yeah, full of debilitation. The the uh -huh. our our bad captain from Discovery, Jellico. No, that's Next Generation. Oh, Discovery. Yeah, um, Lorca. Lorca, right? So here we have like you know our bad captain, right? He's making bad decisions. He's too aggressive. He's and so we get the military music, and I think it's one of the things that says this guy's not totally unfamiliar to. Star Trek. It's just that he always turns out to be the villain of the episode. He's uh -huh. never the hero. Aboard the Constellation, Kirk and Spock, they decide to uh, cross-connect the circuits from the warp drive into the impulse engines? I don't know what that means. I don't either. So uh, it would be hard for one man to handle, says, says Scotty. You worry about your miracle, Mr. Scott. I'll worry about mine, says Kirk. Back on the Enterprise, uh, they are closing fast. And then the, the Doomsday Machine fires again. Deflectors holding, but weakening. They are headed right into the Maw. Back on the Constellation, they are about ready. And the screen comes to life. And he sees the Enterprise firing on the DM. He says, What the devil is going on? <laughs> That's a good The devil is going on. The Enterprise is doing no damage to the Doomsday Machine at all. But Decker keeps firing. Kirk still can't reach the Enterprise as he tries and tries to hail them. Damage and death all over the ship. Decks three and four have many casualties. Energizers, whatever they are, are out. They're being held in a tractor beam. Spock pleads, as only a Vulcan can, with Decker to retreat. Spock then convinces Decker to veer off, but now they don't have enough power, and they're being pulled into the maw as we go to commercial. What's going to happen? Back to it. Kirk is now watching the Enterprise as it's being pulled into the maw. Scotty has the power working now. Full ahead impulse. They are being tossed apart. It truly is hard to control. If only we had phasers. Phasers? Oh, yeah, got them. <laughs> Kirk says, Scotty, you just earned your pay for this week. 
He fires at the doomsday machine. It's distracted enough that it turns down on the constellation. But now, how will they get away? Decker decides it's their turn to distract the doomsday machine, and he fires. The doomsday machine turns back to the Enterprise. Warp drives and the deflector are out for one solar day, but work continues on the transporter and communications. Decker wants to attack while it's still weak. Illogical, says Spock. He prefers to uh, let the Rigel system go and get Starfleet to come and uh, help and intervene. Then communications open up. They contact Kirk, who's like, where's Spock? Uh, I'm in command here, says Decker. <laughs> what? You're the lunatic who did this? I need Spock. <laughs> Kirk is so Kirk in this, right? I know. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Decker comes back with, but I'm in command. And Kirk comes back with, just give me Spock already. <laughs> so uh, Spock gives him the damage report. Down here. Down here. It's like you guys don't get to talk amongst yourselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, come, come down here. here. Yeah, come down here. Sulu reminds us that it's gaining. Kirk tells them uh, to take evasive action. Commodore Decker then reminds them that he is in charge and he wants to attack. Kirk tells Spock to take command of the ship. As ship's captain. As ship's captain, damn it. I, I demand you do it. Decker says, but what about the regulations? I'm in charge. Kirk says, damn the regulations. <laughs> Spock then tells Decker that he is relieved of duty. Decker says, <laughs> I don't recognize your authority to relieve me. Spock says, you may file a formal protest if we survive our way back to a Starfleet or a uh, Starbase. Now we see why there have been two guards by the turbo lift the whole time. It's so that they can come down and arrest Commodore Decker. It's Chekhov's gun! <laughs> exactly. Yet again. Now, I, th I think one of the things that happens here is that when Kirk is out of the picture, Commodore, well, he can pull rank, he's got regulations, nobody wants to get in trouble. And mm -hmm. so people are like, okay, well, we'll do what you said because it's like, but when it's clear that Kirk is like, no, 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 you're out, you're out, then when Spock says, you know, you're out, all the rest of the crew is like, yeah, Kirk said you're out. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to listen to our captain, man. Yeah, exactly. He's going to make, make, do some, something much more sensible than you. Like, like the Corbinite maneuver. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Decker looks to Spock and says, you're bluffing. Spock says, Vulcans do not bluff. <laughs> Spock tells Kirk he's taking command, then sends Decker down to medical for an examination under guard. Then, with a fake cough, Decker sucker punches Montgomery. A fight ensues, leaving the guard knocked out cold and dragged into a separate room. Spock makes, uh, takes the Enterprise back towards the Constellation. Back to, down below decks, we see Decker, and he's made his way to the shuttlecraft deck. I know this because there's a handy sign on the wall telling us so. Scotty latched communication into impulse as well, somehow using power from the communications to help the impulse drives. Anyway, Kirk plots and plots an intercept course, which will suddenly take them um, fourteen point thirteen point seven hours back to meet up. I don't know what that meant, but I just wrote it the way he said it. Suddenly, Sulu gets a notification about the stolen shuttlecraft. 
we see Decker is aboard the shuttlecraft and he's going to run it right down the doomsday machine's maw. Kirk says, you'll die. Decker says, I've been prepared for that ever since I killed my own crew. Kirk says, no one says that you're responsible. Decker says, a captain is responsible for the lives of his crew and their deaths. And then we get this nice push in while he's saying that from the camera. It's really cool. Spock says he won't succeed. Kirk tries to convince him not to do it. He says the Federation will be stronger with you, uh, with you in it than without you. But Decker does it anyway. His shuttle is destroyed and the doomsday machine still lives. Commercial. Back to it. Kirk says, geez, Decker died for nothing. And then Sulu notices a drop in power. Maybe it wasn't for nothing. The transporter is back online, and Kirk decides to send the, uh, the damage control team over to the Constellation to get it fixed up. Maybe Decker had the right idea, but he didn't have enough power. New plan! We're going to fly the Constellation into the Maw. We're going to let the impulse engines explode with a 97 megaton, excuse me, 97.85 megaton explosion. Kirk tells Spock to rig a 30-second delay to explode the impulse in engines. Scotty then comes aboard the bridge to show him how it works, and then Scotty beams back to the ship. But it takes a while. Scotty comes back aboard. What the places is wrong with this dang thing, he says. Scotty then goes to fix the transporter so they can get Kirk back in time. Tense moments as we wait for the Constellation to get clo close enough for the 30-second delay to work. Kirk sets it and then tells them to beam it aboard, but it shorts out again. Oh no. Shorts. They're like a little puff of smoke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the one aboard the Enterprise. And then the one in the Jeffries, too, when uh, Scotty's like trying to fix it, it's just like these sparks, like, and these flashing lights keep happening and these sound effects. <laughs> Kirk's not being beamed aboard. Scotty's trying to fix it. Gentlemen. Be me aboard, says, <laughs> says Kirk. Sulu starts his countdown like he's done so many episodes oh, yeah. before. That man loves a clock. Sure does. And then Kyle does it at literally the last second. Oh, whew. Kirk rushes to the bridge and he seems that the do and he sees that the doomsday machine is inert. They quickly talk about how sad it is of Matt Decker dying in the line of duty. We also get for the second time this episode that walk in front of the view screen. Not often done in uh, the original series, but done so many times in the next generation. Spock then speculates that there may be more doomsday machines out there. But Kirk says, <laughs> I find one to be quite sufficient. There we go. Another great episode all wrapped as we go to credits. And another episode with no B story, if you notice. I mean, there was sort of one, right, with the Decker-Spock thing, but it was, you know, it comes out of the right. storyline. So uh, it works really nicely here. And now your question from earlier. With the numerous photographic, photographic effects needed, the Doomsday Machine came in at a total cost of $176,336. It magically came in $8,000 under budget. The first episode of the second season to not exceed the money allocated by the studio. The second season deficit also dropped because of this 
by $11,453, down to a mere $112,000 over budget. Still almost one full episode over budget. Roddenberry, Coon, and Justman need to find more bargains like this for the Doomsday Machine, says Cashman. Doomsday Machine was one of five episodes from 1967 to be nominated for a Hugo Award. As I said, Entertainment Weekly picked it fourth on its best trek ever. Also, Jimmy Doohan said that. He said this. For one thing, it had William Wyndham in it. He's a very good actor. And uh, it was a very strong role for him. A very self-tortured character. Very driven. And a strong statement about nuclear weapons. And the effects were extremely good. That this, uh, this was an epic storyline for television. It wasn't a standout role for Scotty, but it was okay, and I was pleased. I saw it not long ago, and I still consider it to be a very exciting television, he said. I like the idea that uh, Dewan would be like, what's on TV? Hey, it's an episode of Star Trek. Let's check it out. <laughs> uh, that's it. That's all I got on this episode. Uh, anything for you? Anything we didn't hit? Anything we didn't talk about? No, we got it all there. I think I so, too. I think it's it's fun to have this episode in mind when you when you watch the motion picture. True. And you see the young Decker and basically Kirk pulling a Decker on Decker. <laughs> right. He's just. We also not, get another. Go ahead. He's just you know he so he makes the mistake of trying to fire the phasers in the wormhole, which was you know dangerous and bad, and. But by the end of it, of course, it's Kirk is in Kirk form and he saves everybody. That's fantastic. So exactly, exactly. Well, you know, so not only in this one do we, not only in the motion picture, do we get a uh, a, a satellite or a, a a giant thing that's you know taking over the galaxy, or looks like it's going to destroying everything in its path. But we also get that satellite from Star Trek Four too that does the same thing. Well, there we go. That'll wrap up another great episode. Fantastic episode. Really dug this episode. Enjoyed very much of it. I liked it a lot. Can't wait to see more like it. Hopefully we see more like it. I know we got Mirror Mirror still on the agenda, so I'm excited about that. However, next week's episode, I've forgotten the name of already. Wolf in the Fold is this next episode. Apparently, um, it's another. It's actually kind of like the episode that uh, Spinrader originally pitched. They're on. They're on a uh, pleasure planet. Uh, a woman dies. Uh, in this case, Scotty is the one who looks like uh, he was the one who did it. So uh, a mystery occurs. Occurs. <laughs> a mystery occurs, and uh, they they got to figure out what happened. So good thing they got someone logical like Spock aboard to help them uh, break it down and figure out what's happening. So that's next week's episode. Tune in for that. Uh, with nothing else to say, my name's Matt. As always, you can find us on the YouTubes. You can find us on iTunes. Find us on SoundCloud. We got an Instagram account where we're posting funny things all the time. And uh, also uh, the Facebook page. Come and like the Facebook page. And I'll always post and let you know when we're uh, coming aboard. Hey, we, are, we also got our own website. You can find us, too, on the uh, brotherstrickabout.com. It's fun. We are also post whenever we put up a new episode on there as well. Well, that's it. My name's Matt. As always, Ken from Houston saying goodbye. Say goodbye again. Live long and prosper. There we go. And we will see everybody next week. <laughs>